Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we're back with Dr. Jillian Isaac and Key Words Part 5. Today we are going to tackle succinylcholine and the interscaling brachial plexus block. Now, I just recently did an upper extremity nerve block episode with uh, Drs. Uh, Rias and Segna, but that was a very in-depth look at specifically the how to do those blocks from a very clinical perspective, and this is going to be, remember, really an overview for testing purposes. So I am excited to have Jillian back with me. Jillian, welcome back to the show. Thank you. So yeah, like Jed said, the purpose of these keyword reviews is to help prepare you for the test. It's not meant to be an in-depth and an everything. It's meant to be these are the type of questions you're going to see on the test, and hopefully you'll get them correct as a result. So the first keyword we're going to do today is succinylcholine. If you look under the ABA keywords, it's under muscle relaxant and in parentheses depolarizing. The ABA wants us to know about mechanism of action, the pharmacokinetics and dynamics, prolongation of action and synergism, metabolism, side effects and toxicity, indications and contraindications, antagonism of blockade and drug interactions. So when you go to anesthesia, uh, sorry, open anesthesia, and you look and see what years these topics were tested, um, the ones that were tested more frequently were the termination of the blockade, potassium increases, lower esophageal sphincter pressure that was back in 08, contraindications, and then a big one is the dibucane number mm-hmm. or the pseudocolonesterase, typical, atypical. So we'll get to that. And I just have to tell you, Jillian, I've literally recently had a patient with that. Oh, really? Yeah. I've had, I've had two in my career. One who came in for a consult recently just saying, I have this. And another one I actually discovered after she received succinylcholine and was paralyzed for a couple of hours. That's what we had. It was striking. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So then the next thing that I do after looking at the ABA outline and going to open anesthesia is I actually review old test questions to get a sense of what they're testing. And it's very similar to other drugs. Indications. So when are you going to use this drug? Contraindications. When should you absolutely not use this drug? How does it go away? What is the effect on the fetus? What are the side effects? And then pseudocolonesterase deficiency and dibucane number. So that's really what the ABA is testing, despite what it necessarily has in its keyword list. Okay. So I want to change the topic for this podcast. Uh, sorry, not the topic. <laughs> change the format a little bit. Normally what I do is I present a topic, and then we do some questions, and mm-hmm. present a topic and do some questions. This one I want to kind of flip it, and I want to use questions as a way to guide the learning. Sounds good. Um, with that said, I do need to give a little brief overview to kind of get everyone on the same page, and then we'll go to questions, and we'll do that reverse format. 
Okay, so uh, depolarizing drugs are agonists at the acetylcholine receptors. Sexinylcholine is the only one in clinical use. Do you remember the other one? No, that, oh, yeah. I think it's, <laughs> put you it on like the spot central there. Central acting. <laughs> it's so it's called decamethodium. It was a slow onset and intermediate duration depolarizing drug. So you could see how it'd be very not helpful. Yeah. Um, and I had to dig back in my old fourth edition of Barish. <laughs> I think we're on the sixth or seventh now to see it. Wow, um, impressive. So that's not in use, and they're not testing it anymore. It's kind of just gone completely off the testing market. Uh, so succinylcholine is effectively two acetylcholine molecules joined together, and the quaternary ammonium radicals of succinylcholine bind to the two alpha subunits of a nicotinic receptor. And that's key because I don't know why the board has asked it, but I've heard rumors that it's on the basic as what subunit it binds to. So that's why I mentioned the alpha subunits, which is very specific. And then depolarization occurs. So when voltage-sensitive sodium channels sense membrane depolarization, they open and then close and become inactive. Activated. So normally when it's acetylcholine, acetylcholine gets uh, very quickly hydrolyzed by acetylcholinesterase. It's really quick, like a millisecond, and the sodium channels um, reactivate. But with succinylcholine, it's not metabolized by acetylcholinesterases in the neuromuscular junction. So you get a prolonged activation of the receptors. And the sodium receptors at the end plate and the perijunctional zone remain inactivated, and junctional transmission is blocked, and the muscle becomes flaccid. Uh, and that's called a phase one block. Uh, and recovery occurs as actually succinylcholine needs to diffuse away from the neuromuscular junction. So it's not the same as acetylcholine that gets chewed up right there. It diffuses away and then gets chewed up in the bloodstreams by pseudocholinesterase, which is also called plasma cholinesterase. Um, and they ask that a lot. Uh, prolonged exposure to succinylcholine, either like a repeated dose or you're doing a drip for, I've done them for um, like suspension, laryngoscopies. Mm-hmm. You can get what's called a phase two block, and we'll go into that. So here's a question that kind of reviews what we just talked about is question one. The effect of succinylcholine is terminated at postsynaptic effector cells by A, binding and uptake by effector cells, B, diffusion into capillaries, C, hydrolysis by junctional cholinesterases, D, hydrolysis by pseudocholinesterase, and E, spontaneous degradation to succinyl monocholine. So you touched upon this, that it has to diffuse away from the junction first. So uh, I think diffusion into capillaries makes right. the most sense. And I think that's really confusing because people think about, well, it goes away by pseudocholinesterase, and they think it might be there in the junction, but it's right. actually acetylcholinesterase that's there. Um, so just to go through the other answers, there are certain molecules that do go away by uptake, but succinylcholine is not one of them. Hydrolysis by junctional cholinesterases, that's acetylcholine. Hydrolysis by pseudocholinesterase, now that's a very tempting answer because it's true. It's a true statement, but it's not answering the question that's given to you. And then the spontaneous degradation to succinyl monocholine, it just sounds really good. So if you don't really remember, it's a very tempting answer. So yeah, it it is terminated, the action is terminated by diffusion into capillaries. So now we're going to flip it and we're going to do questions and then review the topic. Okay. Sounds good. So the first question, a parturient receives ketamine 2 milligrams per kilogram and succinylcholine 1.5 milligram per kilogram for induction prior to elective cesarean delivery. Which of the following is most likely to be present in the newborn infant? So before I even give you the A through E, what is this testing? So it's testing whether it gets into the... uh the placenta. Exactly. It's a test question about does succinylcholine cross the placenta. So the answer options are A, normal muscle tone, B, bradycardia, C, 
opistotonos. I don't know. If I said that. Oh, there you go. We've t- we've done this before. Yes, we yeah. <laughs> Respiratory depression and seizures. So the first decision tree you have to make is does succinylcholine cross the placenta? So if you think it does cross the placenta, then some of these answers might actually make sense to you. Like bradycardia, you can see right. that in pediatric. Uh, patients, respiratory depression because they're paralyzed. Um, I'm not even going to say C again. It means severe muscle spasms associated with tetanus. You would think, well, maybe muscle spasms, or you don't even know what it means, right? Uh, but then you think those are kind of all grouped together. And if right. succinylcholine crosses the placenta, you might see all of those things. So right. um, then it's kind of, well, maybe it doesn't. And if it doesn't, then it's going to have no effect and it's normal muscle tone. So that's really the review is that uh, succinylcholine does not cross the placenta. So to put you on the spot a little bit, and I think this is a great review to always review this, is in my head, there are really only like four big drugs or classes of drugs that don't cross the placenta. So I tell my residents, it's much easier to remember what doesn't cross than what does, because pretty much everything does. So do you remember like one or two that don't? So I used to know a mnemonic for this, actually, oh. um, but I can't remember what it is. Uh, yeah, so I know sucks does not. Um, uh, atropine? So I have insulin, glycopyrrolate, heparin, and then the neuromuscular blocking drugs. Insulin, glyco, heparin, and, and yeah, I can't the think neuro- what that mnemonic would yeah. be. Somebody out there may know. Write in and let us know if you know what is the mnemonic. <laughs> um, I don't know about atropine. That was a right. guess. So maybe atropine does or does not share. But those, uh, so say those one more time, Jillian, those that so don't. So insulin, glycopyrrolate, heparin, and then the neuromuscular blocking drugs. Okay. So drugs don't cross the placenta for very specific reasons. It could be the molecule's very big. Uh, it could be that it's heavily protein-bound. It could be that it's ionized. So this leads up to our next question, which is administration of succinylcholine, one milligram to, per kilogram to a pregnant woman, rarely causes fetal neuromuscular blockade. Which characteristic of succinylcholine best explains this phenomenon? So I like this question because the first decision tree is, does it cross the placenta? Yes, no. And if you went for yes, then the next decision tree you'd have to go through is, how does the baby get rid of it? Like, why are there no side effects? So if you trip up on the first one, you've automatically, like, missed the second right. one. But you could actually answer the first decision tree correct is, no, it does not cross the placenta, but still get the reason wrong. So right. A is high protein binding. B is ionization. C is lack of passive placental diffusion. D is lipid solubility. And E is metabolism in the fetal liver. So I'm pretty sure it's ionization. Yeah, and that's one of the few that don't cross because of ionization. Usually it's because they're highly they're just really big molecules or right. highly protein bound. So that's the learning point here is that succinylcholine does not cross the placenta because it is highly ionized. I think that's the same for glycopyrrolate. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that E the metabolism in the fetal liver might be if you thought it crossed the placenta, if you messed up that decision tree, I think that would probably be the way you would you would go with that question. So, yep. Yeah. So you needed to know two things for that. So the next topic, then moving on, is indications for succinylcholine. So a 28-year-old patient has severe laryngospasm after extubation of the trachea following general anesthesia. Administration of 100% oxygen using CPAP does not improve symptoms, and now the saturation is 75%. Which of the following is the most appropriate immediate management? So A, laryngeal mask airway, B, lidocaine, C, racemic epi, D, succinylcholine, and E, cricothyroidotomy. 
Right. So it's going to be succinylcholine there. And I think the key is they told you the SAT was 75%. If they had said this patient was still satting, you know, 98%, you could try deepening the anesthetic with propofol, for example. But once they're desatting to that point, uh, if you know it's laryngospasm, you've got to just give the succin reintubate. Yeah. And it, it says you've already done the CPAP. Because if you didn't read that, if you're kind of skimming the question, you might go for LMA because you think that's positive pressure. But you've already done that maneuver. And that is actually one of the big indications for succinylcholine is laryngospasm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one is for facilitation of tracheal intubation. So those are really the two reasons why you're going to use succinylcholine. So this kind of goes along with it. It's a little bit different, but kind of similar nonetheless. So this is a 40-year-old man, requires brief surgical relaxation after administration of neostigmin and glycopyrrolate for reversal of vecuronium-induced neuromuscular blockade. So this guy, you know, they're end of surgery and, you know, you're CA1 and you reverse and the surgeon's like, oh, no, I still have this to go. And you're like, oh, okay. So you gave some succinylcholine. Um, So compared with a patient who has not had prior reversal of neuromuscular blockade, which of the following characterizes the succinylcholine blockade in this patient? So A, greater antagonism with calcium chloride. B, slower onset. C, less profound. D, less likelihood of phase two neuromuscular block. E, prolonged duration. So this is an interesting question, and I think can be tricky, but I think what they're getting at here is that when you give reversal of a uh, non-depolarizing medication, you're giving an anti-cholinesterase medication like neostigmine that is going to then also be anti-pseudocholinesterase, and therefore there'll be less active pseudocholinesterase to break down the succinylcholine, so you'll have a prolonged duration of action of such. Right. And that's the, the key there, is that neostigmine will prolong the effect of succinylcholine. And I put that into the laryngospasm category because it's not uncommon that you've already reversed someone with glyco and neo, and now they're having laryngospasm and you give suck. So you would expect to see a longer block. And that's a common test question. And this is a same question, just in a different scenario. So it's a 16-year-old girl who's receiving isoflurane, nitrous oxide, oxygen, and pancuronium for insertion of a Harrington rod. In order to perform a wake-up test, the muscle relaxant was antagonized with neostigmine and atropine. The patient moved all extremities and was given thiopental, you can tell it's an old question, thiopental and succinylcholine rapidly. 45 minutes later, no twitch could be elicited with a nerve stimulator. The most likely explanation is A, a WK number of 20, B, incomplete antagonism of pancuronium. C, prolongation of the action of succinylcholine by neostigmine. D, spinal cord damage caused by the abrupt arousal. E, synergism between succinylcholine and pancuronium. Right. So as you said, same question there and getting at the prolongation by the neostigmine. Yeah. So now we're going to move on to contraindications. So we did, when are we going to use this? Well, now, when should we not use it? And I feel like there are a lot more contraindications than there are indications. And so there are a lot more questions that you're going to see about when should you not use this drug. So one week after sustaining third-degree burns over 40% of his body surface area, a patient requires general anesthesia for debridement and skin grafting. Which of the following responses to neuromuscular blockers is most likely? And I will say, anytime they give you like a trauma or burn scenario, timing is key. So this is one week later. So A, clinically insignificant increases in serum potassium concentration after administration of succinylcholine. B, increased risk of hyperkalemia after administration of succinylcholine. C, increased sensitivity to vecuronium. D, laudanazine toxicity after administration of atricurium. E, normal serum potassium concentration if administration of succinylcholine is preceded by tubucurarine, which we don't use anymore, but it's, it's like when you give a... 
rocker back. Rocker back, yeah. yeah. And, 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 uh, and a, um, what do you call it? Um, defasciculating right. dose. Right. So uh, I think what they're getting at there is that uh, once you have a significant burn, 24 to 48 hours later, you then start to develop, uh, even though that sounds very early, those uh, immature um, uh, extra-junctional acetylcholine receptors, and so it's no longer safe to give SOX because you can have a significant hyperkalemic response. Right. Exactly. So that's the learning point here is in uh, with burns, it's okay to use and depends on who you read. It says up 24 to 48 hours, but I think you're safer going with the more conservative 24 hours, yep. but not uh, after that due to upregulation of acetylcholine receptors. And then I was reading embarrassed that you're not supposed to use it for at least one year. Uh, so maybe like a year out from burns, it might be okay, but that one year you shouldn't use it. And again, the timing is key. So can, going on with the contraindications, the succinylcholine. So succinylcholine can be administered safely to a patient with am, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, right? Lou mm-hmm. B, cerebral palsy. C, a pelvic crush injury sustained two weeks ago. D, a 20% body surface area burn sustained 10 days ago. E, hemiparesis one month after a cerebrovascular accident. Right. So this is getting at that anytime there's denervation injury, you cannot give sucks. And so uh, certainly ALS is, by definition, denervation. Crush injury and burn both can lead to denervation, as can a stroke. And so what we're left with is cerebral palsy, which um, actually is not denervation at all. It can be hyperactivity of muscles and nerves, but not denervation. Right. And I've seen that question a couple times about the use of succinylcholine in patients with cerebral palsy, and it's actually safe there. The other thing we sometimes see is uh, the use of succinylcholine in patients with myasthenia gravis and actually does not cause a hyperkalemic response. In fact, patients with myasthenia gravis are resistant to succinylcholine. Um, So you can use it in them. You just have to use a bigger dose. So that's uh, another time they might put it in there and say, they want you to be tripped up and to think, oh, you know, that sounds like denervation, so maybe it's not safe. And that would be a, a trick answer. In fact, it is safe to use. They're just resistant to it. So this is a similar question, just like uh, the one before it, is which of the following conditions is a contraindication to the use of succinylcholine? So it's just flat out asking you. So A, burns of 50% body, body surface area occurring 12 hours ago. B, cirrhosis. C, myotonic dystrophy. D, seizure disorder, and E, spinal cord transaction within the past six hours. Right. So that's, you know, what I like about this is that even if you couldn't remember, uh, you know, what is that cutoff? Is it 24 or 48 hours? Uh, It doesn't matter because you've got two that are less than 24, uh, which means that they can't both be right. And so you know that that those two have to be out. And so that leaves you with cirrhosis, which doesn't really make sense, and um, myotonic dystrophy, uh, which is a denervation uh, type of disease, and so that would be correct. Right. Uh, and then next question is hyperkalemia in response to the administration of an intubating dose of succinylcholine is associated with each of the following disorders except. So A, poliomyelitis, B, multiple sclerosis, C, hemiplegia, D, acute cervical cord transection, and E, familial periodic paralysis. Yeah, so that's tough, but uh, I think that what they're getting at is they said acute cervical cord transaction. Now, I would argue that's not a great phraseology because right, acute, what does right, that mean? Right. But It doesn't uh, give you a time. And right. the hard one was multiple sclerosis because I was on the fence, but in my head I justified this answer. It must be severe yep. multiple sclerosis. It's called multiple like demyelinating issues. Right, I would agree but with that. I think what they're trying to get at is it's okay to give it in an acute, like a less than 24 Hyper-acute, hour. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um, and one last one for contraindications – 
Compared with similar use in adults, routine use of succinylcholine in children is hazardous because of the increased risk for which of the following? A, anaphylactoid reaction, B, phase 2 blockade, C, pseudocholinesterase deficiency, D, pulmonary aspiration, and E, undiagnosed myopathy. Right. So, uh, you know, I always think about, especially in boys, right, that there's that risk in boys of having an undiagnosed um, X-linked uh, myotonic dystrophy of some kind. And so uh, that tends to be, and, and I think the answer choice there, they said, was undiagnosed myopathy. Undiagnosed, right. And that's the, the concern. So that's the learning point is that it's relatively contraindicated in pediatric patients, especially boys. I remember learning, though, and it's been years, and I'm not a pediatric anesthesiologist, but if you need it, you need it. Like if you're in a situation where it's laryngospasm and it's break the laryngospasm, or not, you needed it. But in this yep. day and age of rock, I also wonder. Rock and Zygamidex. Yeah. Right. What's going to happen to succinylcholine if it's going to start getting phased out or people are going to use it less as like a new generation come? Like, I'm a big fan of rock and Zygamidex. Um, I've used succinylcholine less and less. So it'll be interesting in kids if that's going to take the place of succinylcholine. But that's an aside. Yep. Yeah. It always takes about 10 years <laughs> for the test to keep up with what's happening in clinical practice. Uh, so this is another pediatric question and uh, another highly tested topic is anesthesia is induced with sevoflurane in a three-year-old girl. 60 seconds after administration of succinylcholine, one milligram per kilogram is given IV. Heart rate decreases rapidly from 120 to 60 beats per minute. What is the most likely cause? So I also say if you're doing a test question, the best way to get it right is to cover the answers and try to answer it in your head. So if you can actually answer it in your head, 99% of the time that is the correct answer. But I'll give you the options. So A, it's acute hyperkalemia. B, failure to pretreat with a non-depolarizing relaxant. C, sevoflurane overdose. D, muscarinic activity. E, sympathetic ganglionic blockade. Yeah, so muscarinic activity. Yeah, so succinylcholine actually commonly causes bradycardia in kids, and it's due to a structural similarity of acetylcholine, and it has parasympathetic activity at the muscarinic uh, receptors. So, other side effects that you've seen that you see tested is increased gastric pressure, increased lower esophageal sphincter tone, elevated ICP, and elevated intraocular pressure with succinylcholine. However, if you read like the more current literature, less and less we're believing that it really has that huge of an influence on those pressures. So you're seeing those test questions kind of fade away because it's a little bit more gray now than it was considered in the past. So moving on to our next topic, which is pseudocholinesterase deficiency. So a 15-kilogram three-year-old child is anesthetized for an inguinal hernia repair with halothane and nitrous oxide. Old test question, halothane there. Trachea is intubated after administration of succinylcholine, 30 milligrams. At the conclusion of the 45-minute procedure, the child is not breathing. A peripheral nerve twitch monitor indicates no response to a train of four. Further investigation is most likely to show. A, abnormal response to non-depolarizing muscle relaxants. B, a low dibucane number. C, a low plasma cholinesterase concentration. D, an underlying myopathy. E, a positive halothane caffeine contracture test. Right, so that last one is getting at malignant hyperthermia. Um, But uh, again, a low dibucane number is going to indicate abnormal pseudocholinesterase. So it's not a low amount of pseudocholinesterase, it's an abnormal function. Function, right. And that's indicated, the test that we use is the dibucane test, and so a low dibucane number. So what this is testing is it, so that you know, if you give succinylcholine, you're always supposed to check twitches five to ten minutes later before you give another neuromuscular blockade to make sure that you don't have a pseudocholinesterase deficiency. Because you wouldn't pick it up in a long case. You, you know, if it's a six, eight-hour case, you might not know it. Um, but this is a case of someone who got succinylcholine and can't what's the word metabolize it correctly so it just sticks around right uh so the learning point is that 
pharmaceutical nestrase deficiency is actually quite rare. Most people, so 96% of the population have normal plasma cholinesterase activity. About 4% are heterozygous, so one good gene, one bad gene. So pretty good activity, kind of like half uh, activity, and then homozygous atypical is only 0.04 percent of the population. So it's really rare, but when it happens, like you said, it's quite striking. So normal pseudoclonesterase is inhibited by dibucane. So for normal people, 80 percent of the pseudoclonesterase enzyme activity will be inhibited, and that's a dibucane number of 80. Heterozygous dibucane number is 40, so 40 percent inhibition, and for homozygous atypical, it's 20. So a high dibucane number is normal, and a low one is atypical. And the other reason this is tricky is you are tempted to think, oh, a high dibucane number must mean 80% function or 80% normal, and that's not what it means. It's 80% inhibited by uh, dibucane, and that's uh, that indicates normal pseudocholinesterase. Okay, so this is to reinforce that a 23 year old man who was receiving his first anesthetic has not resumed spontaneous ventilation two hours after receiving succinylcholine. Train of four shows no twitch response. Which of the following is the most likely cholinesterase genotype in this patient? So, A is atypical, atypical. B is fluoride resistant, fluoride resistant. C is fluoride resistant, silent. D is normal, normal, and E is normal, silent. Well, I will admit I don't know what fluoride <laughs> resistance right, has exactly. to do with, but right. uh, atypical, atypical. Right. So if it's been, I think they said two hours. Right. So a homozygous, right. uh, I mean heterozygous, it prolongs it, but not by much, maybe 30 to 45 minutes at most compared to a normal 10 minutes, but two hours is getting into homozygous territory. Right. So atypical, atypical. Yeah. And then the last question or the last topic that we're going to cover about pseudocholine, sorry, uh, succinylcholine is a phase two block. So a 60 kilogram 38-year-old woman undergoes laparoscopic tubal ligation. Paralysis is maintained for one hour with an infusion of succinylcholine at a rate of 10 milligrams per minute. At the end of the procedure, respirations are shallow and tetanic fade is noted on neuromuscular stimulation. In addition to continued mechanical ventilation, which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? So this is a very classic phase two block question. Someone who's gotten a long, like an hour infusion worth of succinylcholine, which I've actually done before. Like 15 years ago in our starting residency, we would do sex strips instead of, because we didn't really have Remy, so we were doing it for those like highly stimulating but very short procedures. Mm. And I actually never saw a phase two block. <laughs> and I've probably done it four or five times. Um, but this is kind of the classic scenario. So the options are A, observe until the patient recovers spontaneously, B, monitor until the end tidal CO2 reaches 50, D, determine the dibucane number, D, administer fresh frozen plasma, E, administer glycoprylate and neostigmine. Right. So if you think that the patient has a phase two block, you just support them until yep. it recovers. Phase two block, you wait it out. And I think the hard one sometimes is distinguishing between pseudocholinesterase deficiency and a phase two block. For a phase two block, you really have to have succinylcholine for a, a an infusion for a prolonged period of time or repeated doses of it. That's really what you're looking for in the question. Whereas if it's just someone got a one-time dose and then they're not getting twitches, that's a pseudocholinesterase deficiency. Right. And I remember the number uh, of about at least five milligrams per kilogram of sucks as a dose, at which point you'd start to potentially see it, not guaranteed. But so, you know, our normal dose of one to 1.5 mg per kg, you'd have to do three, four, five of those before you'd potentially see it. So just to recap, what you're most likely to see on a test are indications for succinylcholine, which are? So tracheal intubation or laryngospasm. Contraindications. So we there can, are a bunch. Exactly. So, <laughs> right. right. The, all the potential things that could lead to hyperkalemia, um, elevated intracranial pressure, as you said, you know, moving away a little bit from elevated intraocular pressure. Um, 
obviously malignant hyperthermia. Right. And its effects on p- potassium, which kind of go along with the contraindications. The effect of neostigmine, it causes Prolonged. prolongation. Mm-hmm. Pseudocolonesterase deficiency in dibucane numbers, dibucane, dibucane, uh, phase two block, and then side effects, big one, bradycardia impedes. Right. And then does it cross the placenta? No. Awesome. All right. That's super useful stuff. And now we're going to move on to interscaling brachial plexus blocks. All right. This one isn't as long. This one's a little bit shorter. So if you go to the ABA keywords, you go to anatomy and regional anesthesia, and it says main nerve blocks, extremities, brachial plexus, and there are four major ones. There's interscaling, supraclavicular, infraclavicular, and axillary. Of those, interscaling block has been tested many times, 2011, 2013, 2012, 16, 17, pretty much every year since 2011. They're testing side effects, anatomy, complications, and technique. Uh, Superclavicular block has been tested three times in the past 10 years. Infraclavicular, interestingly enough, has not been tested at all in the past 10 years. Axillary block has been tested using ultrasound anatomy, block limitations, complications, and a median nerve rescue about five times in the past 10 years. So initially I was going to do all of these, and then I realized it was too much to do all at one go. So today we're going to focus on interscaling block, and next time we'll do supraclavicular and axillary combined. Okay. So based on old test questions for today, oh, that's what I said. We're going to focus on the interscaling block. Um, I, in talking with residents, I think the ABA is actually using more and more ultrasound images on the written exam and not just on the OSCE, but there are still plenty of questions regarding anatomy that they can ask that don't require ultrasound. And in talking with some of the folks who write the test, they have to limit the amount of like pictures and videos they use because it actually crashes the system. Mm. They have to go with the test banks and there's only so much bandwidth and they don't want to like crash the system in the middle of a test. So that's why they actually limit the number of images and stuff that are in these tests. So so we're going to review indications, the anatomy, complications and side effects. And we're going to go back and forth between a little bit of review and the questions. So indications for this block. So anything shoulder surgery, um, because it's really the only block you can do that will cover the whole shoulder. And then, in theory, anything below it, though, in general, there are other blocks that are better for lower down the arm. So Barish says distal shoulder, arm, and elbow surgery. So those are the big indications for the scaling brachial plexus block. So the brachial plexus, as we know, it's a nerve network. It supplies the upper extremity. It's formed by C5 to T1. It exits the cervical spine and travels between the anterior and middle scaling muscles and then travels distally around the axillary artery. The space between the scalene muscles is called the interscalene groove, and it's palpable behind the lateral head of the sternocleidomastoid muscle and adjacent to the C6 lateral tubercle, which is the same level as the cricocortilage, and it's also known as Chastignac's tubercle. Under ultrasound visualization, the brachial plexus can be seen as two or three hollow circles, and people refer to it as a stoplight, and that corresponds with the superior, middle, and inferior trunks. The inferior trunk can sometimes be difficult to visualize as the muscle gets thicker. Once it's visualized, then you inject the local anesthetic uh, to block nerve impulses and cause upper extremity numbness and weak nerves. Structures immediately distal to the nerve block placement consistently block nerve impulses and causes sensory and and movement loss. So for this one... Really, this is key to know that ulnar distribution is the most commonly missed because it's that inferior one and it's hard, harder to get to. So just be aware about that when you're taking tests and also when you're actually doing these blocks. And you're, you're right. That comes up all the time, the ulnar sparing or which is the most likely right. to miss. Exactly. All the time, all yeah. the time. Yeah. And I have to say in preparing for this 
podcast, I had to review a lot of anatomy. My brain hurt in a way it hasn't hurt in a long time. <laughs> so, so with an inner scalene plexus, brachial plexus block A, more local anesthetic drug is required than for axillary block. B, the biceps and brachialis muscles are blocked last. C, the intercostobrachial nerve is usually blocked. D, the lateral antibrachial cutaneous nerve is usually spared. E, the ulnar nerve is most likely to be spared. So yeah. the ulnar nerve, yeah. Which is such a common test question. Yep. Just to review the other ones. So the lateral antibrachial cutaneous nerve is from the posterior cord and receives innervation from all three chunks. So you usually get most of it or part of it. Uh, and... The intercostobrachial nerve, which is T2, it's a cutaneous branch of the intercostal nerve, innervates the upper medial arm and potentially part of the shoulder, and that must be supplemented if a brachial plexus block is used, and that's any brachial plexus block. So just to review that, too, because you see that very commonly. Uh, The last muscle to be affected by an interscaling brachial plexus block is the, you ready for this, A, brachialis, B, brachioradialis, C, biceps, D, flexor carpe radialis, and E, interosseus. I have no idea. Yeah. So not going to lie, last night I would not have gotten this question right. So I actually had to look up what nerves innervate all of these. So I think it's a great review because this is – I like it because they're not just saying what nerves are being blocked. They're going with the muscle. So you have to know the nerve that yep. supplies the muscle, which is like MS1 anatomy yeah. <laughs> all over again. So the brachialis is uh, the muscular cutaneous nerve. You miss that with the axillary block, but not with uh, interscaling block. Brachioradialis is innervated by the radial nerve. Biceps is the musculocutaneous nerve. The flexor carpi radialis is the median nerve, and the interosseous muscles of the hand, with the exception of the first and second lumbricals, are innervated by the deep branch of the ulnar nerve. nerve. So pretty much it's asking what nerve is spared, but in a very different way. And it's a very tough question, but Mm -hmm. it's... It's a good one, too, in my opinion. It's really going to weed out like those who really know it and those yeah. who just know ulnar nerve, which is me. <laughs> yep, totally. right. So another anatomy one. Which of the following statements regarding innervation of the upper extremity is true? A, blockade of the radial nerve decreases the patient's ability to spread the fingers apart. B, the brachial plexus receives preganglionic sympathetic fibers arising from C5 through T2. C, interscaling injection of the brachial plexus at C6 is likely to spare the axillary nerve. D, the musculocutaneous nerve receives contributions from C5 and C6. E, the vertebral artery lies posterior to the nerve roots of the brachial plexus. And again, my, (laughs) my anatomy... Uh, would have to be refreshed. Yeah. So let's go through these top to bottom. So A, blockade of the radial nerve decreases the patient's ability to spread the fingers apart. So the palmar, I had to look this up, the palmar interosseous muscles are what do that, and they're the ulnar nerve. Right. So that would not be the radial nerve, which we learned in the prior question. So the brachial plexus receives preganglionic sympathetic fibers arising from C5 through T2. That's incorrect. It gets it from um, T1 to L2, L3, just like the sympathetic nervous system. The interscaling injection of the brachial plexus at C6 is likely to spare the axillary nerve, but the axillary nerve comes from the posterior cord, which roots are C5 to C8 and and T1, and you're going to get those. Um, So the muscular cutaneous nerve does, as D is the correct answer, it does receive contributions from C5 and C6. And the vertebral artery lies posterior to the nerve roots. I can't even tell you. I looked at so many anatomy pictures, and I actually think they're going with medial. Mm. Because it's not really like right behind it. It's like almost medial to it. But okay. don't quote me on that one. I did spend a lot of time trying to figure it out. But it's not posterior. Not the right <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. Another anatomy one. 
which surface of area of the upper extremity is most likely to be unanesthetized by an interscalene brachial plexus block? So again, it's pretty much asking what of these are affected by the ulnar nerve. So hypothenar eminence, A, B, thenar eminence, C, dorsolateral surface of the hand, D, lateral aspect of the forearm, E, lateral surface of the upper arm. So, I mean, if you know that the hypothenar eminence is on the ulnar side, then that right. makes it's the most the sense. the pinky side. So it's A, hypothenar eminence. I actually, I knew that one, <laughs> one of the few ones I did. And I like, this is another, I like this question that's coming up because it's, um, asking about nerve peripheral nerve stimulator, which you don't see anymore, but it's a good, I like it as an anatomy question. So when performing an interscalene nerve block with a peripheral nerve stimulator, you note diaphragmatic movement. You should now, A, inject the local anesthetic as the needle is the appropriate location. B, redirect the needle in an anterior direction. C, redirect the needle in a posterior direction. And D, advance the needle about a half centimeter and inject. So, you know, you're getting the phrenic nerve. Right. Um, and so you would need to know the relationship of the phrenic nerve to the brachial plexus. Um, and that it, I remember these questions always thinking, I hope I don't get one because I never know. And I still don't know. So the phrenic nerve runs anterior. Remember, it's like running on the front. So that's anterior to the brachial plexus. So you need to advance. Yeah. So you need to come back and redirect posterior. So you're anterior. If you're getting the phrenic nerve, you're anterior to the brachial plexus. So you need to redirect posterior. Oh, okay. Yeah. So complications of an interscalene, you can imagine what they might be. So you want to list a few, if you remember? Certainly, you can get a pneumothorax. You almost always, if not always, get uh, diaphragmatic paralysis. So I'm going to call that a side effect. So okay. let's go with side effects, like pretty much guaranteed to happen, like okay. known, kind of like sympathectomy after a spinal, okay. versus complication, which is something really bad, but doesn't is pretty rare. Is that a good distinguish between the two? So complications are things that are rare and side effects are things that are common. Right. Sure. That's what I'm okay. going with. So <laughs> rare. In my so, head. <laughs> yeah. So certainly you can get intravascular injection. You can get a pneumothorax. Um, you can get uh, hypotension uh, from blocking sympathetics um, or from injecting intravascularly, obviously. Um, I suppose if you really went wrong, you could end up uh, <laughs> injecting into the um, intrathecal space and getting yeah. a high spinal. Yeah, you could. So if you go too medially, you can actually enter the intravertebral foramina and get spinal or epidural anesthesia. It's pretty rare. Hematoma, if you actually hit that vertebral artery, that's there. And then the bezel gerish reflex, which mm. is severe hypotension and bradycardia, which is rare. I don't know if I've ever seen it. It's one of those things you read about. I also uh, don't think I've seen it, but yes, it is one of those things. And in fact, I remember as a resident having our German attendings tell us how to really pronounce it. And now I can't remember. Oh, that's um, but yes, uh, it's kind of um, complete cardiovascular collapse. Right. Yeah. So the complications are things that you don't expect to happen, but know that they are a very small possibility, where side effects are pretty much guaranteed to see or much more common. So the one you talked about is the ipsilateral phrenic nerve blockade. So the diaphragm is going to be paralyzed, um, which occurs in 100% of patients, and it's associated with a 25% reduction in pulmonary function. So you have to keep that in mind if you're blocking someone who has uh, an issue with their respiratory system. Uh, Horner syndrome due to the spread of the, up the sympathetic chain. So that's the ptosis, anhydrosis, and meiosis, sometimes nasal congestion. And then a hoarse voice due to spread to the recurrent laryngeal nerve. So those are the more common side effects. So... Question, which of the following statements concerning interscalene brachial plexus block is true? A, the three trunks of the plexus are in the same fascial plane as the internal jugular vein. D, uh, B, distal spread of anesthetic past the humeral head is accelerated by adduction, adduction of the arm. C, anesthetic solution can spread up the fascial sheath to involve the stellate ganglion. 
D, ipsilateral diaphragmatic paralysis results from epidural spread. E, rich vascularity in the sheath promotes rapid vascular uptake of anesthetic. So I'd probably go with the fascial spread affecting the stellate ganglion, which uh, can cause some of the side effects we talked about. Right, the Horner syndrome, which is true. So the ipsilateral diaphragmatic paralysis is a very tempting answer because it's true, but the last part is not. It's not from epidural spread. It's from getting the phrenic nerve, which is anterior to the brachial plexus. And then you really don't want rapid vascular uptake of anesthetic that could cause last. So that's not a great answer there either. So. Uh, here's another question about side effects and or complications. So an obese 75-year-old woman scheduled for ORIF uh, of the arm 30 minutes after successful interscaling block using 20 ml of 2% lidocaine, she becomes dyspneic. The dyspnea is most likely related to... So A, cervical epidural block, B, cervical sympathetic block with bronchospasm, C, chylothorax, God, I hope not, D, elevation of the left hemidiaphragm, E, recurrent laryngeal nerve block. So she's 75. She's, at that point, you know, going to have some reduced pulmonary function, and we said you always get um, phrenic nerve paralysis, so she's probably got elevation of the hemidiaphragm. Right. Uh, so similar line of questioning, a 30-year-old woman has difficulty talking 15 minutes after initiation of interscaling block for a closed reduction of a dislocated shoulder, most likely causes A, cervical sympathetic block, B, delayed systemic toxic reaction, C, phrenic nerve paralysis, D, pneumothorax, E, recurrent laryngeal nerve block. And so you already mentioned the hoarseness from recurrent laryngeal nerve block, which is probably what she has. Right. Just to reinforce what we learned earlier, which of the following is the most important disadvantage of interscaling brachial plexus block compared with other approaches? A, large volumes of local anesthetics are required. B, frequent sparing of the ulnar nerve. C, frequent sparing of the musculocutaneous nerve. D, high incidence of pneumothorax. So the ulnar nerve The ulnar nerve is the big reason, right. Uh, And then getting into complications, during the placement of an interscaling block, the patient becomes hypotensive, bradycardic, apneic, and cyanotic. The most likely cause is... Sounds like they got that they unfortunate <laughs> they spot they in spot. the subarachnoid <laughs> right. space. Yeah. So just to review, I think for interscaline plexus blocks, the most common questions are going to be anatomy, especially with and without ultrasound, but really more complex anatomy questions than I've seen with other blocks. And then complications and side effects. Those are the big ones. And the older nerve distribution. Awesome. All right. That was super useful. And now is the part of our show where we do random recommendations. So, Jillian... You have made some great recommendations in the past. Do you have a random recommendation for our listeners, something you will be recommending to friends and family to check out? So I do. It's actually a board game, (laughs) which people don't really think of. Uh, So my kids are very different age range. I have a 23-year-old and a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old, and it's really hard to find anything that we all enjoy doing together. So I found this board game. It's called Sequence, Hmm. like Sequence of Events, S-E-Q-U-E-N-C-E. It's a combination of like a board game and a card game and the whole point of the game is to get five in a row but the board pieces are look just like your drawing cards like a deck of cards okay but they're on the playing board it's not a card on the board they're actually like pictures of it on the board and you draw a playing card and if it matches you can put your piece there so you have seven playing cards in your hands and you're trying to get five in a row using the cards that you have in your hands but there are some helps like uh jacks or wild you can put anywhere on the board you can actually take some away and it's fun because it's an easy concept you just want to get five in a row it's very easy to learn and to do my seven-year-old can play it my 23 year old likes it it's actually a really fun interesting game very cool nice like for a whole family to play 
Well, that this is was not going to be my random recommendation, and I'll still give my original. But I will. That reminds me, there's a great game that also is good for whole families called Dixit, D-I-X-I-T, and it's uh, something that uh, my brother and sister-in-law introduced us to, and the kids like it. All adults can play. It's fun. And uh, it's kind of hard to explain, but it involves getting some cards with just crazy random pictures on them. And everybody, it's when it's your turn, you uh, pick a word to describe a picture that you're going to submit. And then everyone else submits one of their pictures that they think most fits that word. And then everybody votes on which one they think was yours. And then there's different points assigned as to whether people get it or don't or whatever. So, so it's, it's a little bit like apples to apples, which is kind of, yeah. Is it Words Against Humanity? Is that the card game? Something Against Humanity? Cards Against Humanity, I but for kids' version. Okay. So the kids' version of Cards Against Humanity is like apples for apples. I remember playing apples which is a, a long word, time but ago. But it's very similar. Like everyone votes as to what word fills in the blank right, the best. Right. This is like who the picture. That, yep. Yeah. So okay. this is fun. I recommend it. All right. So um, before I do my official random recommendation, we have a listener random recommendation. This is from one of our residents here at Hawkins, Dr. Luke Bodding. And Luke recommends the New York Times 1619 podcast. So this is a, a, a podcast and series that they're doing to commemorate the 400-year anniversary of the first slaves to arrive in North America. And uh, I haven't yet actually had a chance to listen to it, but Luke says it's just incredibly well done and uh, something I plan to check out and that Luke recommends. So thank you, Luke. And remember, all you listeners out there, submit your random recommendations, and we'll pick some of them and read them on the air. And finally, I, and this is not quite that random, but I do want to say that we are going to be doing two podcasts from the ASA meeting next month. And uh, I think they're going to be really interesting, so stay tuned. Check them out. If you're going to be at ASA, by the way, try to come say hi if you see us around. Uh, But there will be, um, first, Jeffrey Cooper, who is a professor of anesthesia at MGH and the co-founder of the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation, as well as the founder of the Center uh, Center for Medical Simulation, will be giving the LSC Pierce Lecture on relationships as they relate to patient safety, especially the anesthesia surgery dyad. So the relationship between the anesthesiologist and the surgeon, he's talking about how important that is for patient safety. And I think that's going to be really interesting. And then I will be interviewing him about that. And the second one is that Dr. Janine Wiener-Kronish, who is the chair of anesthesia at Massachusetts General Hospital, will be giving the John Severinghouse Lecture on personalized PEEP. And so I'll be interviewing her about that topic. And I think those are going to be really interesting, and it'll be fun to do them from the floor of the ASA. So be ready and check them out, and we'll be interested to hear what you think as well. Jillian, thanks so much for coming back to the show. No problem. All right, another excellent keyword episode. Hopefully you found it useful. Let us know what you thought. You can go to the website, atgrack.com, and leave a comment there. You can join the conversation on Twitter at ACRAC Podcast, and I'm at Jay Wolpaw. You can also join the new ACRAC Facebook group and take part there. There's lots of fun stuff. And a big thank you to Kimia Kashkuli, who is our ACRAC intern and doing great work there. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show, even if you've already done it. You can do it again, as it turns out, and uh, feel free. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show, even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge. It makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime at paypal.me slash ACRAC. And, of course, a huge thank you to all of you who are already patrons and have already made donations. 
And a big thank you to Brian Park for the outlines he's continuing to make for some of the shows. Original ACRAG music is by the one and only Dr. Dennis Quo. Check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. Thanks for listening. For Dr. Jillian Isaac and the ACRAG podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Thank you.